Hello, welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we are doing on Thursday in the late morning. I guess it's almost noon in the East. Joining us from the Eastern Time Zone, but relocated to Indianapolis for this weekend's All-Star Weekend festivities is Tim Bontemps. Well, since our guy, McMahon, is on vacation, I don't have to teach any vocab today, which I'm very happy about. Yes, we're stepping it up to... uh, the Ivy League of the West Coast, because we've got a University of Washington graduate, Kevin the Machine Pelton, joining us from Seattle. Yeah, I'm sure the UW Alumni Association will be thrilled, or the recruiting department here, you refer to that as the Ivy League of the West Coast. I was well, going to say, what about the Big Ten of the West Coast? That's right, baby. <laughs> Ohio State's <laughs> going out country. there and s- stealing Pac-12 coaches. Look, it's it snowed here this morning on February 15th, so maybe we are a really Big Ten country now. I'll tell you what, when I'm in Seattle, that's what I think. This looks like Big Ten country. <laughs> and yeah, McMahon is uh, is taking some uh, much-deserved time with the IT, the IT department uh, over the weekend, so we've got Pelton very admirably uh, pinch-hitting for him here. Um, speaking of uh, being out West, where Pelton and I am right now, the Western Conference uh, is hitting the All-Star break here, and... After these, the about what was it, maybe eight, 10 days ago, all there was a basically a four way tie at first. Things have sorted themselves out, particularly because Minnesota went out west and had a great western trip, including a win against the Clippers. But the Denver Nuggets lost their third consecutive game on Wednesday night, and for the second time, they lost to the Kings, and for the second game in a row, failed to crack 100 points. Now, Jamal Murray has a shin injury, and he was out for that game. Uh, and look, uh, you know. We're not, you know, I think we've seen enough in the NBA not to judge, uh, not to judge, you know, defending champions too harshly by streaks in the, um, you know, during the regular season. There was a point earlier this year where they lost four out of five, but they are in fourth place. Um, And Pelton, what I'm more interested in is just their pretty big backslide on the offensive end of the court. You know, and and maybe the numbers are pulled down slightly because they, you know, again, failed to crack 100 the last couple of games. But they were the number one offensive team in the playoffs last year, and they were uh, a top 10 offensive team during the regular season. They're in the middle of the pack uh, offensively. And, you know, plenty of time. I don't doubt them. They've certainly proven themselves, but they're showing a little bit of vulnerability, especially with some teams in the West flexing their muscles. Yeah, it's pretty wild, especially when you consider that Nikola Jokic is, again, putting up uh, historic offensive numbers, you know, at the center of this. And Porter and Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray have kind of carried their weight. And, you know, we expected a bit of an offensive backslide, I think, from the bench with the the loss of Bruce Brown Jr. and, and knowing that they were going to be so young and improve unproven there Peyton Watson has played terrifically I think kind of under the radar Christian Brown has not had the second season that you know I'm sure the Nuggets were expecting and then I think nationally that people were expecting after seeing him play so well in the finals as a rookie I I think what's most interesting to me about Denver as a whole is just kind of the contrast to where they were a year ago because one of the things I went to go look at is what did the West standings look like a year ago today as compared to what they look like now And coming out of Valentine's Day a year ago, Denver had opened up five games on the rest of the Mm, Western Conference. They were en route to basically putting the conference away when they beat Memphis right before the John Morant uh, uh, video gun incident in the the nightclub in Aurora, Colorado. That night, they basically locked up the Western Conference. And, you know, with a month left in the season, it was very early March. Tim and I were in Boston for the Sloan Conference at that point. And then from that point on, 
they're able to rest Nikola Jokic considerably the rest of the way, kind of manage their minutes, not have to worry about seeding whatsoever and still have home court advantage ultimately throughout the playoffs. You know, this year we're looking at a scenario where we'll see just how much, you know, as the defending champions, they worry about seeding. But, you know, home court advantage matters more for Denver because of the altitude than it does anywhere else. And their choice is going to be between not having home court beyond the first round or having, you know, kind of to extend their starters and Jokic in particular down the stretch and not be able to come into the playoffs as rested as they did a year ago. Oh, and by the way, in the playoffs last year, you mentioned the home court advantage, lost one game at home en route to winning the title, right? Obviously, it was a huge advantage for them. If you want to look at it on the positive end of the spectrum, I just looked it up while you were talking. Number one played lineup this year, Denver starting five, net rating plus 13 in 654 minutes, offensive rating 125. So yeah. their five guys are out there. They still are a dominant team. And there are obviously real questions about the bench. You mentioned Christian Brown. I saw them a few times a couple weeks ago. It was interesting how Peyton Watson has sort of surpassed him in the depth chart there, and he hasn't really had the same kind of year he did last year. Reggie Jackson experience has not been great. Obviously, their bench gets better in the playoffs when they have Aaron Gordon play those center minutes like they did in the game in Boston, which was a game they clearly ratcheted up and wanted to win and went out and had Aaron Gordon play basically the entire second half. I think he did play the entire second half of that game and played backup center in that game, and they went, closed out a game on the road against Boston. So we've seen them dial it up, and I think when we talked about them at the time, I said they remind me of some of those LeBron teams with Miami and Cleveland where they sort of feel like they're in cruise control and they're just going to turn it up when it matters in a couple of months. But again, if you have the number one seed and you're getting a team coming out of the play-in tournament, it's a little bit different thing than if you're, say, playing Phoenix in the first round and then going on the road to play the number one seed in the second round. Like it's just, it's got the potential to be a more difficult road at minimum than it was last year. Yeah. And it's, you bring up a good point about their bench because their bench is super duper young, you know, cause you're, you're really relying on a bunch of, not maybe not relying, but you're, you got a bunch of first and second year players. Um, I guess Peyton Watson, Peyton Watson, second year player. There's a lot of guys playing those roles that you need. And, you know, you just feel the loss of uh, Bruce Brown and Jeff Green there. And now look, I, at the highest level, when it really matters, you know, Jokic is going to be out there 40 plus minutes. You know, Gordon's going to be out there 40 plus minutes. Um, you know, Murray's going to be playing heavy minutes. It, it, it might not matter. But I do think there's something to be said. It's something to point out that they're, they haven't shown the same resiliency during the regular season as they did last year. You know, one of the things I think will define the Western Conference playoffs, um, leaving uh, potential runs by the by the Warriors and Lakers out for now, because that's contractually obligated to talk about on TV, on ESPN. Looking at these top four <laughs> players, or these top four teams, youth and experience is a is a big thing looking at this top four, in my view. You've got the the Thunder, who are arguably the young wanting to be one of the youngest teams we've ever seen in a high playoff seat. Not um, not arguable. They they will be. I mean, yeah, we'll see how right. Gordon Hayward changes their age a little bit, but you know, it's them and the first incarnation of the Thunder. Right. So then you look at the Timberwolves. Now the Timberwolves have some experienced players. Obviously Mike Conley, obviously Rudy Gobert, uh, plenty of playoff games there. But as a collective, this is an organization that hasn't had any playoff success. They haven't won a playoff series. I looked this up uh, the other day since Ant was two which is just an indication of, of uh, you know, and so Carl Towns is not a young player, but again, you're, if you're asking a team to win three playoff series, it's never won one playing together. Experience two all-stars have a combined three playoff victories, not playoff right. series victories, playoff game victories. 
Exactly. So, you know, that's a big ask. And then you look at Denver and their bench is a little young. Obviously, they got a bunch of guys with rings, you know, and and then you look at the Clippers and they have everything. They have depth. They have experience. They have guys with rings. They have, I mean, they got like PJ Tucker got sent home this week. PJ Tucker would be getting how many minutes a game in Denver? Like Denver would be running him out there in their top seven, I think, without question. I mean, if he didn't play well, fine. But he'd be if if PJ Tucker was available as a buyout candidate and Denver signed him, he'd be in that rotation lickety split. Uh, and 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 he hasn't played since November for the Clippers. It, okay, it's, it's a Clippers cast off, and Richie Jackson is currently in the right. yeah. rotation. And by the way, you mentioned that Clipper team last night or Wednesday night uh, for pod listeners. They're playing in Golden State. They're down most of the game. And in the fourth quarter, they come back and win that game with Kawhi Leonard not playing and with Paul George fouling out with four minutes to go. And that run was largely driven by Norm Powell and other bench guys who were playing great. And like they, their, their depth, obviously, like you said, when you get to the playoffs, depth matters less because your star players play a lot more. But the Clippers don't have any weak links when it comes to really their rotation stuff. Like they're rolling out there with some pretty potent lineups up and down that can do a lot of different things. And uh, I thought that was a really impressive game from them. Yeah. Since you brought that up, since you you brought that game up a very high character way. Now, just again, the Clippers lost at home earlier this week to the Timberwolves where the Wolves demonstrated how their size really can can make a difference. The Clippers do have some issues with size at times or have, have, it's been an issue. It's been a little bit of a thorn for them. This is the last game before the all-star break. It's a total getaway game situation. Kawhi doesn't play. He did make the trip with them, which I respected, by the way. He came up and uh, was on the bench. Totally would have been understood if he wanted an extra day. And, you know, he was dealing with an injury and just stay at home. But I respect that he came with them. And they're down 15 or 17 or something like that. Golden State's won five games in a row. It's in, it's on the road. Ty Lu gets ejected in with like nine minutes to go, which doesn't usually happen. Ty will get tech every now and then, but he usually keeps his cool. He gets ejected and they handle their business and get a really good um, golden state started uh, double teaming and they just really just ran their offense, move the ball. Uh, you mentioned Norm Powell, Bontemps Powell hit, I think four threes in the fourth quarter and just a real high character win. And by the way, uh, also I'll say the same thing about the Lakers on Wednesday going into Salt Lake, which historically taking teams coming on a back-to-back off the West Coast, Salt Lake has feasted on those situations for decades. And LeBron doesn't make the trip and they're catching on a back-to-back total getaway game situation where, you know, you could just totally let go on that and the Lakers go in there and win. Interestingly, you know, you'll know the result when this pod comes out, but the Warriors now are going into Salt Lake tonight, Thursday night in a makeup game for one of the games uh, that was uh, postponed when their assistant coach Decky passed away uh, suddenly a couple of weeks ago. It's a tough, again, coming off the West coast, coming off a tough loss. Let's see how the warriors handle this test. Now, now granted, it, I don't know how the jazz, the jazz are not in the greatest headspace right now because of uh, they didn't upgrade. They sort of downgraded their roster while in a playoff position at the, at the trade deadline. But uh, we'll see how that same test is. But anyway, going all the way back to the Nuggets, Pelton, what's your concern level about them in general? Are we just filling time in February here talking about a little losing streak? Like I said, I think that element of the way that they were able to set up for last year's playoffs is what separates it to me because I I referenced it was a little bit 
less than a year ago that that Tim and I were at Sloan and and you know the the Nuggets had all but locked up the first seed. And one of the things that talking to people from the Nuggets mentioned was you know the previous two years their playoff runs that Jokic was exhausted by that point in the season from having to carry them without a healthy Jamal Murray throughout the regular season and you know with the concern about seeding. It's not going to be to that degree. And Jamal Murray, you know, even though he's dealing with something right now, there's there's every reason to expect that he's going to be healthy, will be around. So that is a moderate concern. And then the other interesting thing is, you know, they they're not eligible for buyout candidates who are making above the the mid level because of the fact that they're in the luxury tax, like so many of these teams. It doesn't seem like they're all that interested anyway. One of the bets that that Kelvin Booth in the Denver front office has made is we're not going to give Michael Malone the option of playing veterans over some of these young guys by going right. out and getting kind of the high quality minimum players that some of these other teams in the West have or some of these other contending teams. And you know that. They're going to kind of sink or swim with these young guys. And that, you know, I think that as Tim mentioned, that Boston game is a really instructive, you know, in terms of how they're going to approach the playoffs. Gordon played the entire second half, as Tim said. And they only played, Michael Malone only played seven guys total. Christian Brown was a DNP in the second half. It was only Peyton Watson and Reggie Jackson off the bench, and that was it. So how many guys are they going to trust in the playoffs? Those are the two levels of concern for me. So I'm probably at like a four or a five. Okay. Yeah, they have another game with Boston coming up shortly after the uh, All-Star break, the uh, Celtics go on a West Coast trip. And I actually want to talk about the Celtics, but before we do, speaking of uh, interesting uh, moves before uh, going on the All-Star break, I think we got to touch about, we got to talk real quickly about the game that happened last night in Phoenix. Um, I should say Wednesday night in Phoenix, where before the game even started, Isaiah Stewart sucker punched Drew Eubanks from the Suns in the back, in like the tunnel in the back. I don't have a lot of details and I'm, I'm sort of expecting by the end of the day video to pop up on TMZ. And I don't know the potential history between Beef Stew and Drew Eubanks. Um, unless you guys know and you can step in here. What I will just say is that it's very unusual for there to be a backstage confrontation in in Phoenix. And the reason is because Phoenix is an old school arena and there's only two tunnels to get off the floor and the teams walk literally at complete opposite ends to their locker rooms. And it's a very long walk in between them. And not only that, it's such a long walk that last year, you may remember during the playoffs, Russell Westbrook was cutting through the courtside club where he got into, into, a, into a screaming match with a fan um, because, uh, you know, he was trying to take a shortcut uh, at halftime. So it makes me, without having all the details, it makes me wonder that like that he really hunted him down because he would have had to have gone the complete opposite direction to get anywhere near the sun's locker room. I, or, I mean, I don't know, maybe Eubanks was in the other tunnel. I don't know. Well, um, it said, I mean, he, he said that it, Eubanks said it happened as he was coming into the arena. So I mean, oh, I wow. mean I, I, obviously I wasn't there from the news story, the AP story on our site. It says Eubanks said before the game that the altercation happened as he was coming into the arena. He said an argument started and they were chest to chest before Stewart threw the punch. Security intervened, and Eubanks said he was fine for the game. The police said he suffered a minor injury. It's a strange. We haven't seen a, strange... a fight in the loading dock since uh, since Jerry Stackhouse and Kirk Snyder. Google it. At least we haven't heard about a fight in the loading dock. <laughs> well, I wouldn't check it out. 
Yeah. Uh, they, yes. they are both Pac-12 guys, uh, at least at least for the rest of this year. But uh, Eubanks was already a pro by the time that Isaiah Stewart was at Washington. So it doesn't date back that far. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I mean, the, the, the fact is, too, I mean, Isaiah Stewart's got a few various incidents like this now at various points. I mean, everybody remembers, obviously, him trying to get after LeBron on the court. But, like, he's had a couple of these things over his career. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. Certainly a strange story. And then he was arrested after the game by the Phoenix police and released. So they had somebody has seen footage of his witnesses. That, uh, also, Eubanks said it was um, it was no big deal. It was a soft punch, which I don't. Well, I don't know about that. I would not mess with uh, Isaiah Stewart. And then, by the way, then Devin Booker gets thrown out of that game five minutes in. Two different technicals five minutes into that game. Seemed so like a pretty that, soft ejection to me. Oh my God, it was crazy. I mean, I I couldn't hear obviously what Booker was saying, but so that's a that's the other end of the spectrum of the character wins that we saw. Just to just to sort of underline, you know, not just giving lip service to that. And then the Pistons, not surprisingly, uh, got blown out by the Suns in that game. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. But anyway, a few minutes ago, we were talking about, you know, Boston. Bontemps got a fair amount of reaction to the uh, to the straw poll from a couple of days ago. And one of the surprises, I think, uh, was that Jason Tatum remained six. I would say that the voters were unmoved by Tatum's play recently because he was sixth in your first poll in December, sixth in this poll, no first or second place votes despite him having a good season um, and the Celtics just having a spectacular, a spectacular uh, first half, more than first half, first 50 games. They won by 50 on Wednesday night against the Nets. He had 40 in that game to go, or he had 40 on Tuesday. They played on that home and home. Um, yeah. Tatum is shooting the ball better this year. His scoring average is down, but that's not a bad thing. He's taking sort of s- some smarter shots. What's your opinion as to why Tatum hasn't gotten more traction in MVP voting? I mean, I, we talked about this a little bit the other day. I think it's a combination of, I mean, I, I think I think it's less about the way that he's he and the Celtics have played in the playoffs. And I just think it's more that, because you know, we talked about that the other day, I, I think it's more that his numbers are very good, but they're just not of the same supercharged caliber of these other guys that we're talking about in part because the Celtics have a ton of talent and they've got Chris Asperzingis getting the ball a bunch and Jalen Brown getting the ball a bunch and Derek White and Drew Holiday getting the ball a bunch. So his usage rate is lower than some of these other guys. And I also think part of it is he's just not quite seen in the same realm as Giannis and Luka and Jokic and even to an extent Jay Gillis Alexander as a player. Now, again, I think he's one of the 10 best players clearly in the league. He's probably, for me, somewhere between like six or seven and nine, like tremendous player. But generally, you see a guy who's in the top five win this award. And I think if Boston goes on to win 65 games, which they're very capable of doing, then perhaps that will change as the year goes along. But I think with the the numbers that these other guys are putting up, I just think it's going to be difficult for Tatum to move up higher on the ballot. And I sort of think this is what we're going to see for a while for Jason Tatum, frankly, which is that he's probably going to be somewhere around fourth or fifth every year, which is basically what he's been because he's an awesome player and his team is awesome, but he's just not quite seen as a top five guy in the league as of now. Now he's also like 26, 
and has continued to get better and he could ascend more. But I think that's generally why he's, I don't want to say an afterthought, but he's farther down the list than these other guys. Yeah, Zach Lowe and I both picked Tatum before the season when we did an awards pod under kind of the logic that number one, you know, the Celtics, we thought were the best team in the NBA. And number two, that some of the the players that, you know, traditionally have been at the top of the ballot might be ineligible because of the 65 game rule is, as we have now seen to come to pass with Joel Embiid. I, I think part of it is not only that Tatum's numbers are not as good as, you know, the the top three guys in particular. They're also not even as good as last season because of, you know, the additions the Celtics have made. And it's kind of funny. I, I can understand if you're a Celtics fan, it seems like uh, from a rec- individual recognition standpoint, people are talking out of both sides of their mouth where, you know, on the one hand, Tatum isn't seen is on the same level. On the other hand, we have this team that's clearly far and away the best regular season team in the league, plus 10 point differential, going to have a terrific, you know, regular season, like one that stacks with the all time best regular seasons. And they have two all stars, which is kind of funny. I mean, Derek White and Kristaps Porzingis, you know, kind of two in that next group out in the Eastern Conference. But uh, I, to go back to Tatum specifically, I, I did not ultimately have him on my ballot. I think, you know, his, the top three to me, assuming those guys stay healthy are pretty close to a lock. Those guys, you know, have separated themselves from the field being Jokic, Giannis and SGA fourth and below that's up for debate. I, I think very much so. And Tatum has a chance if they, if he has a strong finishing kick down the stretch here in Boston, you know, remains number one by a wide margin. I, I think fourth is probably his ceiling, which is where he finished last year. Right. That's true. Now I will say that the Celtics have a number of high profile national television games after uh, the break here, um, including that game in Denver. There is a window for him to sort of improve his case. Although the way they play, the depth that they have, the way that they spread the ball around, I mean, he could play brilliantly and still not get, you know, that sort of string of, you know, 40 or 50 or even the 60 point games that some of the other guys at the top have gotten. Um, And, you know, he has said, you know, that's not what he's looking for. So I'm a big believer in Tatum. I have, you know, sort of locked horns with the other guys on this pod in the past over my belief that he can be top five player and, 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 and do it at the highest level. He has taken shot, you know, he has taken some, some hits in the last couple of years for the way he played in the finals. You know, he just did not have a great finals. He was being bothered by a wrist injury, but you know, I think he had a 13 or 14 point performance in the, the, the elimination game against the, the Warriors on their home floor. Uh, last year, he had a very anemic performance on uh, on game seven against the Heat again, on, you know, on his home floor. Um, he did. He was awesome in game seven against the Sixers. He had 51 and that game was a blowout. He didn't seem like he got the maybe appropriate credit for that. And he also was great in the fourth quarter of game six. So it's not like the resume is full of holes. He just, you know, and, and even Donovan Mitchell, um, who Donovan responded, you know, to the, the straw poll, not directly, but, you know, I think Donovan was a little bit frustrated that he wasn't higher on the straw poll and talked about it a little bit um, the next couple of, you know, like 36 hours after it came out, uh, even though the Cavs had a, a kind of a shaky loss at home to the 76ers that, you know, were missing like three top guys. Donovan was talking after the game about his MVP chances, but he did come on NBA today uh, on Wednesday and was talking about how he thinks that his MVP 
a candidacy is affected by his scattered playoff record and that he understands that for him to really ever get up there, he probably has to prove himself in the, in the postseason, fair or not. So I think that that is a, a factor. It's also, it's also, it also, it also just needs to be said that the ballot is full of ridiculous players. Like Kevin Durant is averaging 28 points on 54% shooting 44% from three averaging like six rebounds, just under six assists. And he got like a handful of votes. I think he was ninth, right? right? Like we're talking about, like there's a lot of guys having unbelievable seasons. So I don't think it's a, and I'm not saying you're framing it this way, but I don't think it's a crime that Jason Tatum is sixth and Donovan Mitchell is eighth. Uh, I, I, like, I agree. It's just, I it's agree. a loaded, it's a loaded field. It's very hard to pick between these guys. I agree. And, you know, and just we're in this such offensive era um, that, you know, because if you're a Cavs fan and you're not watching the league and you're watching Donovan put up these 45 point games and, you know, routinely put up 30 and your team's in second place in the East and you've won 16 out of 18 or, or 17 out of 19 or whatever it is now. And, you know, this drop hole is, you know, it's really, really authentic. It's one of the, you know, McMahon makes fun of me, but like truly it's a really good thing that Bontemps has done. And it like is a real good data readout on, on the way things are. And like, so if you're a Cavs fan, or if you're a Celtics fan, you're watching Tatum have all these really good games. And then you see this poll, I get where you're like, what's going on, but it's, it's hard to have that perspective. I mean, just for offensive perspective, the Lakers, okay, they put up 138 at the Jazz on Wednesday night. And uh, Stats Williams had this incredible number that over the last 11 games, the Lakers have had the highest point average for an 11-game stretch since 1987. And you would never look at this Laker team and say, boy, that's going to rival the Showtime Lakers. But they are playing Showtime-level basketball offensively right now. So you, I think there is some sort of, of, uh, of grappling uh, with that, with the numbers and, you know, that, that, that lack of perspective can, can affect the way people, uh, look at the MVP race, because even though we've seen this scoring bubble over the last few years, it's still accelerating at this point. But anyway, I want to talk more, a little bit more about the Celtics, um, bond temps. So they are hitting the all-star break. They're 43 and 12. I think they've got a six game lead over the Cavs. You know, the Cavs are, 18 and three since January 1st, and they've barely picked up any ground on the Celtics. They are kind of like in the, um, in the zone where the nuggets were last year, they're like in great shape to get that number one seed, uh, all number one overall seed too. And when you look at their production, they, they, okay. In the history of the Celtics, we're going back to 1947. They've had five 50 point wins in franchise history. Two of them have happened this year. Okay. (laughs) Um, they are their, um, their net efficiency, which is the, what they, uh, were relative, uh, to the score for every hundred possessions. They're plus 10.3 that you get Pelton, you get double digit, uh, net ratings, net efficiency. Uh, you're talking about some of the best teams of all time. The last time a team had a plus 10 or better net efficiency was the 1617 warriors, which was the first year that Durant came there, which I will put up as arguably the most, the best team in NBA history, uh, because they added uh, a prime MVP to a 73 win team, basically in exchange for Harrison Barnes and Andrew Bogut. That is the level that this team is playing at right now. But I wonder, do teams after the way the, the Celtics have played in the playoffs last two years, Bontemps, do you think that this 
Celtics team is inspiring any fear considering the way that they are playing and the numbers are putting up? I mean, fear is sort of an interesting way to frame it, right? Like, I think that the Celtics are in the same position Denver was in last year, where Denver was the best team in the West all year, right? And everybody was sort of and like, look, I'll, I'll be the first to say, I kept saying, we've never seen a team with a center like Jokic in terms of his ability to be impactful defensively or not impactful defensively, be a team that wins a title. It just was not something we'd seen. And so you kind of had to see it to believe it, right? And then Denver goes out, they destroy everybody in the playoffs. And it you look back on it, like, well, we should have sort of expected this was how this was going to go, at least possibly because of the way they played during the year. And I think Boston's in a similar place because of the way the last several years have gone, the way they've had failures in the playoffs several times over in very similar fashion where their offense has gotten bogged down. And frankly, they've just struggled to get out of a lot of series against teams that don't have as much talent as them. I think there's a lot of hesitancy to look at the way they're playing and go, hey, this is going to translate to a dominant playoff run. But the introduction of Kristaps Porzingis, when the Celtics made that move, the main reason they did it was they needed to have a different option late in games and playoffs. And they had to have a, a way to attack mismatches in playoffs because Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have not been super successful attacking isolations in those situations in the playoffs. And the introduction of Porzingis and his ability to space the floor and attack mismatches and force a guy like Bam Adebayo, like we've talked about before, to have to stay with him, not be able to roam around and just do what he wants on defense. It's really completely altered the way the Celtics attack these late game situations and doesn't guarantee they're going to win, but they, they just are a supremely talented team. And I don't think the doubters are going to necessarily go away until we see them do it in the playoffs. But the way they are playing and the way they are preparing for the playoffs and trying different things during the season and experimenting all over the place, I think it sets them up to be a different team than they've been in the postseason in the past. And I think they have the potential to, when we get to the end of June, have won the title and for us to be sitting back saying, you know, we really should have just assumed this team was different than they've been. And they are putting up, they did put up a historic resume and we should have assumed they had a chance to be a historic team. Not guaranteeing it's going to happen, but that framework is there where it is, I think, a lot like Denver last year. Where I think yeah. until people see it, there's just going to be that hesitancy to say, this is the year they're finally going to break through because right. of the stuff we've seen in the past. When Denver went 10 and one, in the to finish the playoffs last year, I was like, "Oh, they're pretty damn good." Now, they did benefit from a little bit of a wonky way the playoffs went, and they got the Lakers, who were playing. You know, they got they got two play-in teams. You know, in the conference finals and finals. Now they had earned their way to those spots. I'm just saying, though, that you know, but nonetheless. Denver at the end was totally flexing on everybody, just slapping everybody down. And it was like, oh, well, you know, this is the way it was. So I, I appreciate what you're saying there, Bontemps. Um, but I do think Pelton, because the Celtics have not played to their top level at the playoffs the last couple of years, and I'm saying that about a team that's gone to the finals and conference finals, but was ahead in the finals and and lost it and, you know, lost a game seven at home after completely just coming out flat in the front end of the, in that front end of that conference finals. I do think that there's a bit of some scar tissue with the Celtics as well. Yeah, there's only so much that they can prove during the regular season. Now, I do think to your point at the start of this, we should recognize that this year's Celtics are way beyond what they did the last couple of years, what they've done over this run. As long as they go better than, you know, let me, let me double check my math here. 15 and 12 
the rest of the regular season. It will be the most wins for the Celtics since 2009, since that second big three team that uh, KG was injured in the playoffs and they lost to Orlando that year in a, a really hard fought seven game series in the second round. Right now, the Celtics team has the sixth best winning percentage in or the fifth best winning percentage in franchise history, which as you alluded to at the top, there's a lot of history in Boston. It's a lot of banners. What but is you, the Celtics record for regular season wins? 68. Yeah, I was uh, going to say. I don't, that's not falling this year. <laughs> no, no. I, I think, especially because, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they handle the end of the regular season as we talked about that comparison to Denver and the way that they really kind of coasted to the finish line with Jokic in particular. That hasn't been the Celtics' MO uh, under a variety of different coaches and and continuing now through Joe Mazzilla. They're not a team that you know has has relied on load management other than with Al Horford and now this season maybe Kristaps Porzingis. You know, how much will they rest Tatum and Brown and and the other starters down the the stretch will be interesting. Clearly they're going to manage the center's minutes with Xavier Tillman Sr. Jackson pointed out in the comments the the clutch win percentage difference for the Celtics, which is what had been kind of their Achilles heel in the playoffs going back. And I think it's interesting because you know the the element there, Kristaps Porzingis, I think, is the biggest addition. But in terms of like respect from other opponents, you kind of got Tim kind of yada yada over the best part, which is they also mm, added Drew nice Holiday, reference. who is the yeah, uh, who is a proven finals you know player, a, someone who has defended the opponent's best player th- up through that point and earned a lot of respect doing it. And he's had kind of a down regular season, isn't one of the four Celtics who figured into the all-star uh, discussion this year, but come playoff time, he hasn't played well necessarily offensively in the playoffs in a lot of these runs, but his, his defense is another factor that I think could separate this group, even from the ones that had the defensive player of the year in Marcus Smart on the perimeter the last couple of years. I mean, look, they went from Grant Williams and Marcus Smart, essentially, to Chris Desperzingas and Drew Holiday, right? Like, that's a massive talent upgrade. And yeah, Al Horford's taking a little bit of a step back. But still, that, that was why, from the beginning, I was sort of laughing at people when people were talking about the Porzingis trade. Like, this guy is a really talented player. And then you fast forward to get your holiday. And like, yeah, like, you could debate about stuff they gave up. I mean, we talked about it the other day. The Mavs have given up, you know, essentially three first-round picks to get P.J. Washington and Daniel Gafford on their team. And the Celtics, more the Celtics, I think were down maybe one first round pick, and got those two guys. Now they traded; they good players left to help facilitate that. But still, like that's a huge talent infusion for a team that already might have had more talent than any other team in the league. Well, I think one thing that you can say without any question is they sold extremely high on Marcus Smart, and I know that that was a tough move to make for a number of different reasons, and. There was a lot of criticism about him, you know, about them trading away this, you know, kind of a soul of the team. Obviously, he didn't always get along with everybody, but to get Porzingis and two firsts in return for Marcus Smart. And, you know, look, people people weren't 100% sold on Porzingis. I mean, they were big believers in him, but, you know, there was some skepticism about him putting up kind of, you know, a little bit of inflated numbers in, in Washington. Well, and then let's just not- be, let's just be honest. After the, after the Dallas thing, when he, as we've talked about McMahon has talked about openly, like he got basically salary dumped to Washington. Like he was a guy that had a lot of questions about him. And it's not like what the biggest thing I heard all summer was people around the league saying, is this Porzingis thing really going to work? And is he going to be 
cool being the third or fourth guy on the team or how is that going to go? And as I've said before, from the moment he showed up in Boston, he's had an ear to ear smile and he has been clearly thrilled to be out of essentially NBA purgatory with the Wizards where nobody was paying attention to him and being on one of the, the iconic franchises in the league, on arguably the best team in the league. And just he, he's a guy who going back to when he was with the Knicks has always liked the spotlight and being, you know, in a big market and playing on a big stage. And he has been exemplary on and off the court right. for Boston. Yeah. And look, he's got to stay healthy for it to ultimately work. That was one of the reasons why it hadn't worked before, but not only did they trade for him, but they and then immediately gave him a $60 million extension. So they ran, I will say this too, you know, Brad Stevens has acquitted himself extremely well as an executive uh, since he's right risen to that. Remember that deal. They had a deal for Malcolm Brogdon, which would have gotten them Porzingis and then ultimately sent Brogdon to the Clippers. And it fell apart the day before the draft or draft day. I can't remember. I think it was the day before the draft. That, that and they had this, draft, yeah. and they had this deadline with Porzingis to pick up his option. And, and Porzingis and his representation made it clear they weren't extending the deadline. And so they kind of were racing against the clock. And so not only did they have to make a trade, but they had to make a trade under duress. Um, and so shout out to the Celtics front office, which is, you know, Brad Stevens, Mike Zarin, Austin Ainge, Dave Lewin, that front office scrambling and then putting together that deal that, you know, again, Porzingis got to stay healthy, but right now it looks like a freaking home run under duress with the whole league knowing that, you know, the, 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 you know, one of the reasons with Brogdon was there was some concern over his elbow ended up being okay. And they ended up doing a trade with him obviously. And for Drew holiday ended up working out great for them, but it was, they really weren't able to find a deal for Brogdon. So it was like, okay, figure out this trade. That's super important. The only way you're going to be able to get Porzingis and you had, you lost, you know, you were diminished in the ability to trade Brogdon and, you know, with like the clock bearing down on you. So history forgets that, but like that was, and then, you know, like I said, it's really, it was, a, you know, it was a risk, but it really looks like it's, it's uh, bearing fruit for them right now. I mean, I think the fascinating thing about it is the reason it was a risk is because they were giving up smart and dramatically changing the style of play that right. had been very successful to them up to a point. And that's why, you know, it would have been really fascinating to see the version of the Celtics that they envisioned all off season. But then the Damian Lillard trade happens and the Celtics are kind of just dropped in their laps. Thanks to this ex these extra first round picks they had from the Marcus smart trade with the ability to go out and get drew holiday. And suddenly it's not that we've changed our style of play. We've given up what we did so well to get Christophe Porzingis and try to do something a little different. It's that we can still do all the same things because drew holiday is an improved version of Marcus smart in many senses. And we've got this new dimension. Uh, it is also kind of fascinating. I mean, you mentioned them selling high on smart. W was there any discussion from the Grizzlies trading smart at the deadline? Because that's something that with their financial crunch next year and with the emergence of Vince Williams Jr. as an option on the wing, what was an interesting possibility to me. I didn't hear anything about it. I mean, you know, smarts <clears throat> unfortunately have been impacted by injuries a lot of this year and now is out with a finger injury. So I'm not sure um, what his return timetable is, but. Well, and the one other thing, and we have talked about this a little bit before, the other thing about the smart trade that was beneficial for Boston is it sort of forced both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown into more of a leadership role with this team. So Marcus Smart has always been there. He's always been the heart and soul of the team and sort of the emotional 
center of the team in a lot of ways. And I wrote a story back in November about Jason Tatum getting the six guys together and sort of organize a meeting to talk about how this is going to go and who wasn't going to like figuring out, you know, let's not get caught up in who's starting or finishing games or not worry about any of that kind of stuff. And like, I'm not sure he would have done that a year earlier because Marcus would have been there and Marcus probably would have been saying something. Right. And I, I do think that for guys who are entering their prime, I, I think it was a note, a notable thing that it did sort of seed the stage for them to step up in that regard. And I, I think Tatum has noticeably been a little different about that this year. And I think that's helped them in a lot of respects. And I think the the way they cleared the air on this stuff from the jump, there's been not one bit of any kind of drama with this team at all. And look, obviously it's easy to, for that to be the case in some respects when you're 43 and 12 or whatever their record is right now. But I think they deserve a lot of credit for getting out ahead of that. And that was also in part due to the trade and due to those guys having to take on a bigger leadership role and kind of assume that mantle that they wouldn't have had to otherwise. By the way, on Wednesday night, as they uh, blasted the the Nets, it's this is a nest, Nets-aided stat that I'm about to say. Uh, they surpassed the, the Pacers as the number one offensive team in the league, uh, also ranking third in defense. Uh, you got top three in both. That's pretty damn impressive. That's how you get a plus 10 net rating, but they're now the best offense in the league as well. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. Before we go, I do want to just shout out real quick the way the the New Orleans Pelicans are playing. They're they're sort of stuck in between where a lot of the focus has been because those front four teams in the West have really been fascinating, each of them in their own right. And then naturally, there's a whole lot of attention on the Warriors and Lakers, you know, in the play-in spot, and even the Mavericks who've been playing better lately and, and their trades at the uh, at the deadline. Quietly, the Pelicans, who really did, from what I understand, try to upgrade at the at the deadline, but they really couldn't. Uh, they weren't able to find a deal. They won seven of the last eight games. Now, the game that they won uh, going into the break, they beat the Wizards in a shootout. It wasn't the most impressive victory. Uh, Denny Avdia uh, had 45 points in that game for the Wizards. But Pelicans are seven and one in their last eight games. They were just out here on the West Coast. <clears throat> last week they were here. And uh, Zion uh, had 36 points in that game. And now, <laughs> the Wizards have just traded their franchise center in Daniel Gafford. So it was not um, Bill Russell defending the rim uh, or more appropriately, Wes Unseld uh, defending in the rim there for the Wizards. Uh, but Zion had 15 baskets in the paint in that game. And, you know, one of the things that they have gone really back to uh, recently, uh, Willie Green, uh, the coach has gone back to really playing Zion at point guard. That's something that, you know, Stan Van Gundy sort of, adopted a couple of years ago, then they went away from it and now they're gone back to it. And he is, they have been very effective offense. They've been a very good defensive team consistently since Willie green got there. Their offense has ebbed and flowed because they haven't had good shooting. Zion doesn't stretch the floor. Valanciunas doesn't stretch the floor. They get a little compacted. They've also, you know, Herb Jones, uh, who's gotten better as a three-point shooter, but he doesn't stretch the floor. So they haven't always had the most terrific high-efficiency offense. But in this stretch where uh, Zion has been running point, they are seeing a lot of uh, success. Pelton, the number is crazy that Stats Williams uh, sent out today in the last nine games when Zion initiates the possession running point guard, they're averaging 1.4 
points per possession. One point per good. possession. One point per possession in anything, whether it's a post up or um, or anything, is considered good. One point four for a team that needs offense is considered very, very good. So uh, I, just I, it's for hard context, to be, and we're talking just yeah. for context in case people aren't sure. When we're talking about like the Celtics having a hundred and or like the Denver lineup having one hundred and twenty five offensive rating, that means it's one point two five points per per possession, right? So. It's essentially 140 points per 100 possessions. What we're talking about, like that's that's obviously pretty insane stuff over that kind of a span. Yeah. So um, I don't. I don't. It's hard. It's it's been hard to project the Pelicans for the last couple of years, Pelton, because there's been so many injuries. Um, I really think they were on an upward trajectory uh, after after two seasons ago, but it really hasn't paid off. Brandon Ingram had, was was really banged up last year for a lot of the year with uh, foot problems. You know, they are a team that they have some big decisions to make in the offseason because they've got to pay some of these guys. I don't know if they're going to be able to keep this team together, but they are a dangerous team. They are a flawed team, but they are they can be a dangerous team. I mean, that's why it was kind of fascinating what you mentioned about them potentially looking to upgrade at they the were. trade deadline instead of, yeah. you know, make some adjustments to to manage the salary down the road, which like they're playing too well to do that. But, you know, they, you you alluded to the injuries later when you said that their offense has been up and down. I, I thought you were going to say because of the fact that they haven't had their their three guys together until this stretch That's here true. over That's the right. last couple of months. And then the other guy who's been a huge part of it is Trey Murphy the third, who uh you know was part of our draft friend show of the last pod. year. Yeah. Friend of our pod. <laughs> Since he came back in the lineup, they are 19 and 11 playing at, you know, almost a, a, a two third clip because he provides that floor spacing and he gives them, you know, he's, he's just an incredibly valuable player to have largely coming off the bench. It's a, an incredible luxury for Willie Green. So yeah, you, you know, there's so many teams in the West who have been on runs and have this star pedigree and, and these expectations. If you look at it, Seven out of the 10 teams that would make the West playoffs or play in if the season ended today have gone seven and three in their last 10 games, precisely. Oh, <laughs> five of them are the teams between fifth and 10th. Every team in that group, other than Sacramento, has gone seven and three in their last 10 games. So you mentioned the strong run for Dallas. You know, obviously, Phoenix in, in fifth is a team that the Lakers, the has- Lakers have won eight out of 11. <clears throat> Golden State is also seven of their last 10. So there's a reason we're talking about these teams besides just the fact that they're the Warriors and the Lakers, but they haven't made up any ground on the New Orleans Pelicans. We're still holding strong to that sixth and final spot in the the, the playoffs, avoiding the play-in. And that's going to be such a huge cut line in the Western Conference because they're going to be two really good teams that are going to get knocked out in the play-in. Yeah, and uh, you know, on the flip side of it, I still have doubts about the Pelicans because I just don't know if their overall pieces really fit together great, right? Like the in 33 games, 32 games should say, that see Jim Collin, Brandon Ingram, and Zion Williams have played together. 20 and 12 record, like that is good. But across 558 minutes, they're minus 2.6 net rating, right? And their offense has just not been good. And with Jonas Valanciunas out there, they have struggled. Their five-man starting lineup is underwater for the season. A couple of points negative also. It's the 11th most used lineup in the league. and like you mentioned Trey Murphy, it's going to be interesting to see what happens moving forward in New Orleans because you look at a guy like Trey Murphy and the way he fits with their guys and all of the lineups of Trey Murphy, every combination is very positive. And at some point you might need to find a way to get him out there 
on a more consistent basis uh, and see what that looks like. And it's just going to be interesting to see what that looks like. But we are finally, hopefully, going to get an opportunity to see this New Orleans team at full strength in the playoffs, which is what we've been waiting for now for feels like a decade. Yeah, knock even on though wood. Knock on wood that. On that. Right, yeah. knock on wood. And I hope we do, because then we'll really get some answers to what some of this stuff looks like in a playoff setting. And then I think the Pelicans, you have a ton of draft assets and they've got a ton of interesting players on their roster, can then maybe start to look at this and say, all right, this is the direction we need to go in to try to get this thing to the next level. Because I think a lot of what they've done is have to wait and see what they actually have because so much of the time it's been, well, if these guys are healthy or if they're out there or are we going to see them out there? And now we're actually getting a chance to see that. And they're probably, to me, one of the most interesting teams over the final 30 games and in the playoffs just to see what it actually looks like. Because, I mean, we still haven't seen – I mean, I'm not – I'm correct that we still haven't seen Zion play a single playoff game, right? No, no. Right. So, like, like play that's – right? They made the play. I, think he's I don't think he's been in the play. Yeah, I don't think he played in a play-in game either. I don't think he's – I don't think he's played in a single postseason game of okay. any kind. So, like, yeah, that's right. That's why we were so disappointed by their showing in the in Vegas because that was like the biggest game of his career, and he just yeah down yeah. yeah. So, like, I it's just got to be fascinating to see what they look like because we just haven't seen this full group go up against these elite teams in a high stage like that, and it's gonna I think be very clarifying for what their immediate future looks like. Yeah. All right. Well, a lot of things to look forward to. Are you looking forward to All-Star Weekend? I think uh, Steph Curry, Sabrina Ionescu is the uh, is the highlight of the menu for me, Bontemps. I'm not on sure the, if I'm On the LED at- court at Lucas Oil Stadium, where the NBA is going to be all about being back to basketball, playing in a football stadium. Gonna be good. On an LED court. Yeah. Well, we'll see. They are trying to, and in addition to going back to East versus West rosters on Sunday, is they are not going to, according to Adam Silver, not going to have a big, long, giant introduction ceremony and all this different stuff so the players can properly warm up and go through their routine. Jackson is furious that you can't shoot on the hoop at the airport. They, they installed a, uh, a, a faux court at the airport in Indianapolis, and you can't well, shoot the the NBA spent a lot of time this year talking about how they need to have people care about the all-star game as far as the players go. And the product needs to be better than last year. I am curious to see how it goes. We'll just put it I that mean, way. Now, some of these tweaks they've made for the first year make a big difference. You know, the first time that we had the draft, I think, was the all-star game in L.A. that was terrific. The first year that we went to the Elam ending gave us the it was good. great yeah. game in Chicago that we had. It's the year two and beyond that tends to be the issue. But, you know, the warm-up is, I think, you know, I think it is more than a joke that that's a factor that throws players out of their routines. I think probably the bigger issue is uh, the number of parties that are held on Saturday at the NBA. Uh, probably not going to be able to to change that. That, that one's uh, out of Pandora. Well, I suspect that will not be changing. KP. Well, Mr. Bontemps will be all over uh, the social uh, coverage for us. We can't wait for... Yes. Yeah, states. Um, all Only right. Thank you, there. Mr. Pelton. Thank you, Mr. Bontemps. Enjoy Indianapolis. Thank you to Jackson, our producer. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.